I'm Megan Rosenthal. And I'm Alexis Lee. And this is the Mayo Lab Podcast. Welcome to the Mayo Lab Podcast Season 2, everyone. I'm so happy you're back. And we are going to talk about counseling and therapy today in our stigma conversation. So we would like to welcome Dr. Christy Bates to the podcast. Welcome. Welcome. Uh, I'm not doctor. <laughs> not doctor. Well, so kind. Well, we're going to call you doctor. Right? <laughs> you just got an upgrade. You just got an upgrade. In my heart, you did. Um, well, Christy Bates, welcome yeah. to the podcast. Um, if you'll give us a little background on who you are, how you got into this field, and kind of the work you do currently. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. So uh, I'm a licensed professional counselor and a mindfulness-based spiritual director. I'm an ordained contemplative minister. And so some Mm -hmm. people see me specifically around um, spirituality, mindfulness development, that kind of thing. So I'm in private practice here in Oxford. I also practice throughout Mississippi and Tennessee, which is where I sort of grew up professionally. Mm -hmm. Um, i originally from Alabama, went to college in Memphis, Mm -hmm. ended up in Memphis, uh, ended up in Tennessee until moving down here to be closer to family a couple of years ago, or right a year before the pandemic started, actually. So, yeah. So while I was up there, I did work in a couple of different residential treatment settings, Mm -hmm. one strictly around um, substance addictions, and then one, so that was a seven-year stint, first with adolescents and their families as Mm -hmm. a family counselor, facilitated family week Mm -hmm. and all that, and um, and then... uh, moved to a treatment center where we were treating, uh, it was a trauma-focused treatment center. And so there were a number of programs that actually overlapped. So we treated intimacy disorders, eating disorders, really any sort of process or substance disorders. And that was a wonderful bit of experience. Um, Just, you know, so much fun um, to learn. So I had this role as the sort of the mindfulness lady at first, you know, developed a contemplative program there. And over time, uh, morphed into a trauma specialist as I um, got training in something called brain spotting, which Mm -hmm. is a really highly targeted mindfulness practice for addressing trauma, creative expansion, that kind of thing. And then when I knew I had a granddaughter on the way, I shifted into private practice full time because I had by by the time I left that uh, place, I was a program director and was never not working. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so I uh, shifted into private practice and then a year later sort of threw up my hands and just moved down here. <laughs> <laughs> so, As one does, doctor. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, right, right. So, yes. yeah so, um, so in my private practice, I do get to work with folks that are, it's, it's interesting actually, there are a couple of groups of people. So there's folks that are in early recovery mm-hmm. that are stabilizing recovery. There are folks that have been in recovery for some degree of time and are ready to do a deeper level of mm-hmm. work, of healing work. Um, and also, there's also uh, two sets around age. So I do have mm-hmm. a lot of people emerging adults mm-hmm. and then a whole group that you might could say are their parents. Oh, so, you know, it's just people at these different um, different phases of life yeah wow so you really see this 
spectrum. Yeah. Except for the little littles. That's right. Yeah. 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 Sometimes, it, uh, rarely I've gotten, a, you know, opportunity to work with littles in the room, but not very little. Mm. Yeah. 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 Fascinating. Well, I'm, I'm really excited about this conversation because yeah. I think there's a lot of stigma or misconceptions around the idea of counseling and therapy. Mm-hmm. So we're going to dig in. So can we start with counseling versus therapy? Is there a difference? Yeah. Okay. I actually made myself some little notes just to, so my thoughts would be organized. So th- to me, Therapy is a larger umbrella to describe all kinds of helpers. You know, we have physical therapy, mm-hmm. occupational therapy, mm-hmm. mental health therapy. Mm-hmm. So, But all of these are, are helpers who sort of see us struggling with functioning in mm-hmm. some way, mm-hmm. kind of get to the root of what's happening, make a plan, and address it, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So that's, that's therapy. And so in the realm of mental health therapy, mm-hmm. it's that umbrella can be anyone from your psych nurse practitioner who prescribes meds mm-hmm. or your um or a counselor or a licensed clinical social worker okay yeah okay yeah and so and then and yet the counseling specifically uh the licensed professional counselor mm-hmm. role began and i'm not super super knowledgeable about this as i just remember this from mm-hmm. grad school yeah. mm-hmm. that that it began as the school role, the school counselor role okay. was at first the, uh-huh. right? So, and then over time grew beyond that. Mm-hmm. And so in that, in that realm of you have people that are psychologists that maybe they've been trained from a heavy research place and mm-hmm. you have people maybe that are looking very much mm-hmm. at just the internal workings of one individual. Mm-hmm. Then on the other end, and, and you still call it counseling, but mm-hmm. it would show up as therapy or, you know, kind of those terms used interchangeably like a, um, a licensed clinical social worker mm-hmm. or really any trained social worker is going to have the lens very much on the systems that mm-hmm. they're dealing with, schools, okay. mm-hmm. communities, whatever. And I find, or at least it's been my experience, that that licensed professional counselor role has a bit of both. There is attention to what's going on for people inside. There's also attention to where do we need to be advocating and, mm-hmm. you know, and, and hopefully in a helpful way, disrupting systems mm-hmm. so yeah. that they support wellness instead of mm-hmm. struggle. Right. Yeah. And in this, like, span of all, like, I love that continuum. That's, like, a very good picture. So if people are kind of just entering in this space Mm -hmm. and they have have heard all this and said, well, I don't even know where to start now, how would you suggest people find that entry point into this realm? You know, as far as if somebody is looking for counseling for themselves or for their families, and I've let me just say to my friend, there are also licensed marriage and family therapists, so mm-hmm, I don't want to mm-hmm. I don't want to leave yeah, them out because mm-hmm, that's mm-hmm. A, that is really a beautiful specialty of its own. But um, so some of it is very much word of mouth. Very rarely people come to me; they have no idea I'm not a doctor. They don't. They yeah, just right. somebody yeah. referred them. Sure. They just oh she I heard that lady does brain spotting. Mm-hmm, you know, and right. when I first moved here, and, and thankfully this is not true anymore. But when I was first moved here, if you googled brain spotting in Mississippi, mm-hmm. there were four of us that came up. And only two of us lived in the state. Oh, wow. So now during the pandemic, lots of folks got, you know, trained. And I've been making a big push to make people aware of it. But um, so a lot of times it's what you specialize in or what they're looking for. Mm -hmm. And they really, you know, they just... You know, it's like you have your credentials all over the office. Do they even see them? (laughs) You know? (laughs) But um, so, so in looking, though, for... For help for yourself really is the the word of mouth thing is probably mm-hmm. the hmm. you know the most helpful mm-hmm. um, because really what you're looking for is an experience no matter what 
what type of grad school degree somebody has, mm-hmm. the still, after all this time, after all these neat innovations in the field, the thing that most predicts a successful therapy stint mm-hmm. is the relationship. Mm-hmm. Is the relationship that you feel with mm-hmm. your therapist or counselor or psychologist or whoever it is. And in this word of mouth, I'm going to enter the stigma piece into this because yeah. now I'm sure if people are talking or want to ask about it, there might mm-hmm. be stigma around asking or there might be stigma around talking about your counselor and who yeah. you go to or where you go to. Yeah. How have you seen stigma in your years in this field? Mm-hmm. Have you seen it change, evolve? Is it gotten worse? Has it gotten better? Your experience? Um, in some ways, in some ways, I feel like it's better. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think there are pockets, and a small town is typically one of them, pockets where stigma is not much better than mm-hmm. it was, I would say, when I was in college. Mm-hmm. You know, that's just, I'm kind of, you know, I mm-hmm. still have kind of an outsider's perfe- mm-hmm. perspective. Mm-hmm. I've only lived here a few years. But the word of mouth does seem to have to be very much word of mouth. It's the anybody local who's sharing, somebody's coming to them mm-hmm. to say, hey, who do you know? Mm-hmm. Um it is, it's a rare and it has to be a relatively courageous person that's very vocal mm-hmm. um, in a smaller community about mm-hmm. what they're doing, mm-hmm. you know, for themselves. And mm-hmm. But then in, in other places, I mean, in, um, I mean, in Nashville, it's not that, sure. that big of a town, in, mm-hmm. you know, in some ways. But there was a bit more of an attitude in Nashville that, that a family could have a counselor they worked with just like you would have your family doctor. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, there was, yeah. there was, and of course, that's not in everybody that lived there, didn't feel mm-hmm. that way. But I'm just saying there was this understanding there. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, a lot of that has to do with having several universities there and several, right. yeah. you know, yeah. lots of good programs there and, and the treatment centers mm-hmm. and a recovery community that was thriving, that is thriving. And so there is that sort of, People do kind of grow into this awareness that, oh, part of being a responsible adult is undertaking your care. Right. It also helps that in, and I think that is true in certain places, even here, that in the churches, if the people in leadership make reference to their therapist or Mm -hmm. make reference, it's just Mm -hmm. a humongous help. Wow. Okay. It's just, it makes so much of a difference. Um, Yeah. And so in some ways, it's better. But then also, um, you know, I was considering the the thing that um, the email you had sent mm-hmm. a couple of weeks ago, Alexis, and we were talking. the The issue was about um, um, sort of like what are some of the things that we do that help, or mm-hmm. one of the things that we do that hurt. Mm-hmm. I have to say, coming from uh, somebody who has a lot of empathy, and you know, my trauma it, trauma healing is a focus of mine, but. Um, I think one of the things that we've accidentally created extra stigma for families is um, wanting to move away from acknowledging that addiction is a process of its own and blaming all mm-hmm. symptoms on trauma. Interesting. Because then people feel like if I'm, bring, you know, if I'm bringing my kid to you for help, it's right. like I'm saying I've traumatized them. And, right. and of course, I mean, if you've raised kids, you probably we, we all probably have had moments that we were less than nurturing. Sure. That's not the the thing. But. That feeling of, um, you know, it, the way I'm going to say this may sound kind of harsh, so we might keep it or not. It sells well. Mm-hmm. It treat, mm-hmm. you know, and, and so because people 
have such a fear of being of being labeled in some mm-hmm, way mm-hmm. that um, and yet there is the piece about one of the things I think about in terms of families is is that trauma doesn't cause addiction, but generations of family trauma keep families from responding helpfully to addiction. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things is the secrecy, right? right? If there's right. a family habit or family legacy of feeling like we have to present a certain way, mm-hmm. then when problems arise, right. we're really stuck. Right. You know, and so it's more that our habitual ways of responding to things sure. can be helpful or not. Well, and I think that's a really because we've we've had kind of inklings of this throughout the season yeah. so far, where mm-hmm. we've been talking about this idea of the stigma attached to making a recognition that maybe something didn't go according to plan as a parent, sure. right? And and then you couple that with the ebbs and flows of what's quote unquote sexy or popular or catches on mm-hmm. and and trauma. I think what you're saying is yeah. one of those things that it's it's. Absolutely, without question, a huge issue that needs mm-hmm. attention and concern and and treatment. But when it gets popularized in the way that mm-hmm. it has been, it now becomes something a, a beast of its own, yeah. and that prevents people from from actively seeking out. Because who wants to put up their hand and be like, "I absolutely messed up my kids," and mm-hmm. please go ahead and help them, right? Because <laughs> nobody's going to admit that, right? right? But that's right. really what it kind of comes yeah. down to when folks are are looking for those kinds of services for their families mm-hmm. if, if you're a parent or a guardian or something of that nature. Right. And I think one of the things that you've said already that you mentioned on, I kind of want to dig in on is this idea that that finding a counselor, finding somebody to assist you with, mm-hmm. with whatever might be going on or assist your family with, is really about developing that relationship and that rapport and having that kind of work through the process of whatever plan it is that everybody puts into place to address right. the issue that's happening. And so to destigmatize that mm-hmm. whole can you walk us through what what that relationship building looks like from your perspective and how do you know mm-hmm. if somebody comes in if I come in and talk to you what are clues ideas like bulb moments that you're like, okay, yeah, this is going to work, and we're gonna we're gonna be able to oh, jive together mm-hmm. and and have this work out because I know that the patient probably feels that. But what do you think? What are you looking for in like? Yes, I can work with Megan. She's not going to make me crazy, or she's not going to be a problem, or she's not. I'm not the right person to work with her. Whatever right. the case may be. Oh, that's interesting. Um, as far as I will say that that. I mean, I'm I'm talking over ten thousand hours mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. you know working. Mm-hmm. I mean, just maybe twelve thousand hours of working with people. Yeah, you really can't always predict. Hmm. Like, there's some people mm-hmm. they'll come in, they'll be so excited, they'll be like, "This is the most hopeful I've felt in a long time," yeah. and you will never hear from them again. Really? That can happen. Interesting. Okay. It does not happen very often. Okay. I mean, maybe for some in some situations it does. Yeah. But I think in private practice it has not. But it's it's um. And I do think that mm-hmm. part of that, let me just say, I don't think that has anything to do with magic on my part. It is that word of mouth thing mm-hmm. because when they come in, mm-hmm. right, I I can feel as a therapist mm-hmm. when they're already giving me some trust mm-hmm. just because their friend said mm-hmm. sure. this was a safe person. Sure. Like you can really feel it. Yeah. Um, or especially, you know, I ha- still have colleagues that I used to work with and mm-hmm. I mean, I still work with them. I used to see them for lunch. In mm-hmm. Nashville, and so my friend, who's a, a marriage and family therapist, mm-hmm. she might res- 
send one of the folks to me for individual, you mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. online. And I know that, oh, he really feels comfortable with Bethany. Mm-hmm. This is, this is, I've got a good, you mm-hmm. know, few weeks here mm-hmm. where he can build some rapport and feel comfortable with me. Um, and so, and so for instance, if I misstep or if I'm, um, as, as a counselor, as a therapist, if I'm too quick to make an assumption, mm. right, he'll forgive me one or two of those. Right. Mm. You know? Right. Yeah. Um, just because it's like, no, yeah. you know, I trust Bethany. Bethany she, said this is the person yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. a good fit for me. Yeah. So for the counselor, you really can feel uh-huh. that. Um, you know, as far as, uh, I mean, everybody has, I think, areas that they feel that they do a really good job with. Mm-hmm. And therapists also work really hard to expand their bandwidth. Mm -hmm. Like for us, part of our training and part of our work as people is that if somebody's driving me crazy, Mm -hmm. that really is not about them. Mm -hmm. Truly, truly. Um, Interesting. And, you know, and this is so in part of my contemplative training, and I wish I could remember who I was hearing. This was a... uh, a retreat that somebody recorded. Uh-huh. So I wish I could remember who the speaker was because this teaching, I feel, was so important. Mm-hmm. But it was about dealing with difficult people. And um, she asked the people that were apparently in the room with her to define who was a difficult person. Mm-hmm. And they made all sorts of, you know, guesses mm-hmm. at what a good definition mm-hmm. would be. And she said, you know, that that all sounds fair enough. But when it came right down to it, she said, the difficult person mm-hmm. is the person who's operating outside of our comfort zone. Mm-hmm. That's who we find difficult. Mm-hmm. And so it is important that when you're looking for a therapist, that you want either somebody who is really seasoned because it's not that they're going to know everything. It's just they've been exposed to so many different types of situations sure. that, yeah. that our comfort zone is pretty wide. Yeah. yeah. Right. Um but it doesn't mean that you can't have a brand new therapist. You might have somebody who, who for whatever reasons of their own life, mm-hmm. has had all kinds of exposure. Mm-hmm. And, you know, maybe they're just recently getting schooling, mm-hmm. you know, or maybe mm-hmm. they're just in their mid-20s. But that doesn't mean that they don't have a depth and a breadth of mm-hmm. people that they can mm-hmm. respond to in a helpful way. Um, but when someone... Uh, one of the things that I I want to find a way to create here in a way that's sustainable for also for my life and other people's mm-hmm. lives is situations where um, people can do multifamily groups. When mm-hmm. I, uh, I was actually talking with a friend about this just yesterday, when I was at Cumberland Heights, the first half, it was a four-day program back then for families, the first half of the first day was just the, each person mm-hmm. sharing their story. Hmm. Um, not not the, the the young people weren't in the room. This was just and that even just by lunchtime, people were visibly mm-hmm. relieved. First, visibly relieved that they weren't being told it was their fault. Mm-hmm. I mean, even even as they're naming mm-hmm. mistakes and the ways that mm-hmm. they handled things, mm-hmm. or or just saying, I don't know what my mistake is, mm-hmm. but I know I'm not doing I'm not doing something helpful. Right, right. Um, but but just hearing. Um, each other's stories mm-hmm. uh, that that was just the beginning mm-hmm. but it was an important beginning and I do think sometimes when we only work with people in individual families or only work with people as individuals we don't get that benefit mm-hmm. of 
of mm-hmm. realizing, oh, our, there's lots of families out here struggling. Right. And these and these people in my group that come from all kinds of situations right. and backgrounds, you know. I mean, one of the things I, I do want to be sure to say, because I think it's important, is that part of the genesis of stigma around having a problem of any kind is that just there's something about our human conditioning mm-hmm. and especially the way our societies are set up that we consider, I mean, I'm saying in the mainstream, mm-hmm. you know, not everybody's like this. We consider ourselves successful mm-hmm. to the degree that we can get life to go our way. Right. Mm-hmm. 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 And so if we're living, I mean, for many of us, if we have a lot of privileges mm-hmm. and life goes our way a lot of the time, mm-hmm. if we're living in fortunate situations, you know, mm-hmm. Then when we come up against this thing that matters so much, and here I'm thinking about parents with kids, mm-hmm. but it can it can be any loved one. But the you know the thing I care most about in I mean I can't tell you how many people I've been privileged privileged to really watch them start to grow because this was the first thing they cared enough about mm-hmm. to be willing to open up to their own trauma. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Like. Going, oh, there's something in my history that I need to look at, that I need to heal, that would allow me to be a better support, or at least not get in the way mm-hmm, mm-hmm. of my kid's healing. And their kid was the first thing that was most important, right. more important than feeling protected. Right. And, yeah. You just dropped, like, so many <laughs> gems, yeah. Yeah. right? Like, so many gems. To think about this from the perspective of um, of being like what a flip from I've messed up Mm -hmm. and screwed up my kid to I have to be brave enough Mm -hmm. because my my kid matters so much to me to open up and do something that's going to be wildly uncomfortable and and put me in a vulnerable and potentially dangerous feeling position right. right to do that and then this idea that where we are uncomfortable is where people are pushing out us outside of our comfort zone like that there's I just we're gonna have that's gonna be like in the show notes we're gonna come back to that later because those are the things that we're that we're really digging into for yeah. this season to start to think about in a different right. way and it's just flipping that script of I've done something wrong to think about okay how can I be better in mm-hmm. in assistance to or at least not hindering as you said mm-hmm. my young person whoever that could be or my family member we can broaden it out from there um how 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 did you i'm just gonna stop saying how cool it's it but how (laughs) did you get to that process because we've talked in this space Mm -hmm. to a lot of different people at this point and that's Mm -hmm. the first time i've heard it Mm -hmm. kind of framed in that way so what did what do you think brought you to that frame of thinking in this area yeah part of it is and i did mean to say this at the beginning because it's not a secret i have i I have been involved in my own family recovery Mm -hmm. um and there's various just for people's information various 12-step programs around family recovery Mm -hmm. al-anon families anonymous naranon Codependence code Anonymous, like so, all those uh, Sanon mm-hmm. for uh, families and uh, loved ones of um, people with sex, sex addiction. So these sort of family recovery programs, mm-hmm. it you 
that's where a lot of the juice is, I find, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. for some of those understandings around, oh, the things that I would normally do to help a sick person actually feed this disease. Right. Mm-hmm. And I'm using the word disease mm-hmm. in its hyphenated, very broad form. Mm-hmm. I'm not getting medical, although I do think there's medical right. components. But um, – or I'm told by people who know better than I that there are medical components. I'm not, you know, making claims. But um, but just the – for instance, mm-hmm. um, if we have somebody who's down with the flu for a few weeks, mm-hmm. right, or if our partner's down with the flu, we're – it is – if we are – at all a decent person we're going to pick up the slack Mm -hmm. for a bit you know Mm -hmm. and i mean if it gets to be two or three weeks of it we're going we might get kind of resentful or (laughs) tired tired and worn down right but the thing is is that as we're over functioning that gives them time to rest and Mm -hmm. then they'll kind of start to naturally pick back up Mm -hmm. and then we can sort of come back to more balance Mm -hmm. so that that we're participating in the family in a more balanced way. Mm-hmm. When we have um, forms of uh, forms of addiction and and really other mental health disorders, mm-hmm. the things that we would do to support somebody through chemotherapy, the things that we would do to support somebody through the flu, or even just a twenty four hour stomach virus, actually just give the addicted brain more. Uh, more time to work on the person, mm-hmm. and uh, it 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 ends up locking us into a situation where the the family becomes polarized in these very rigid roles. Um, and and so that's where, you know, in the early 80s, it's interesting. I got to attend a training years ago by a woman who was part of, in the early 80s, sort of creating this description around uh, at the time, what codependency was, and mm-hmm. it was all in, and she she kind of redid these trainings decades later, almost <laughs> like an amends, right, to the community, <laughs> because it was because at that time it sure. was just like, well, if you love somebody who is an addict or who is dealing with mental health issues, then you're, you know, then you're codependent. That's and that mm-hmm. that's your yeah. sickness, and you're making uh, them sick. And mm-hmm. I mean, it was, it was, um, and I, and this is very much a, you know. <laughs> personal observation Mm -hmm. all right from working in treatment centers very often the people that tended to think like that were addicts in recovery who still struggled with understanding like how could somebody have loved me through that they must Mm -hmm. have been really sick Mm -hmm. right that description of codependency came from the low self-esteem of the people who were describing what codependency was right right what what is more understood today yeah. is that codependency is kind of this collection of symptoms mm-hmm. that develop under chronic developmental stress. Mm-hmm. And chronic developmental stress happens in families where there's addiction, but also families where there's chronic poverty through the generations. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, where we live, we're, we deal with the generational traumas, some of which we know, some of which we just carry in our brains and don't Mm -hmm, know, mm -hmm. having to do with being enslaved or having enslaved other people, Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. That's a big part of the trauma Mm -hmm. that goes on um, that people are carrying forward, Mm -hmm. that sense of just guilty for being alive kind Mm -hmm. of feeling, you Mm -hmm. know? Um, I feel like I've wandered way off whatever you were asking me. No, (laughs) No. this is fantastic. No. Yeah, yeah, I was was hoping this episode was going to wander quite a bit. Yeah. Yeah. It is so vast. It it is. It is. You are listening to the Mayo Lab Podcast. 
For more information and resources, visit themayolab.com. Now, back to the episode. I don't want to leave us mm-hmm. hanging on the brain spotting piece. <laughs> oh, because yes. I remember when you and I first met, yeah. pre-pandemic, mm-hmm. really, that feels yeah. like ages ago, in the pre-times, mm-hmm. um, that we talked about brain spotting. And that was the first time I had ever heard about it. And oh, so yeah. f- left that conversation going, and I, I did follow up and like tell everybody, like, you need to talk to Christy because she mm-hmm. has this really cool thing. Um, but can you tell our listeners what it is and how it works and how you've applied it in this space? Because mm-hmm. I think for many people, at least, if, if you're anything like me, you had not heard of this before right. I yeah. talked to you the first time. Yeah, yeah. Well, so – Brain spotting is one way of looking at it is as a highly targeted mindfulness process. Mm-hmm. Now, it's not necessarily meditation related, although people sort of find themselves in that state of mm-hmm. paying attention to their bodies and such. But to simplify a bit, so this was um, Dr. David Grand in around 2003 mm-hmm. stumbled onto the fact that where we look affects what we're accessing. He was doing EMDR, which many people are more familiar with. Mm-hmm. He was doing – he was um, – a lot of his focus um, through the years was in sports psychology and uh, he was in New York. Mm-hmm. So creative, sports mm-hmm. psychology. And so people would come when they would be having glitches that they shouldn't have, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. stage fright or whatever. And – but in doing um, – there's sort of this iconic brain spotting story about – Uh, an ice skater, a figure skater, Mm -hmm. who there was a particular loop that she struggled with. And she could do things that were more difficult, Mm -hmm. like for her level of, Mm -hmm. you know, but it was this particular loop. So they were doing some work around it, and he was using his finger to do EMDR with her, whereas in EMDR, there's all of this, a lot of this back and forth motion. Can you explain EMDR? Yeah, so EMDR is eye movement um, desensitization and reprocessing, if that's if that's mm-hmm. still the correct acronym, I think they did update it at one point. But it has EMDR has to do with the fact that the way that our brain is designed, that mm-hmm. bilateral stimulation of the brain, mm-hmm. do, 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 mm-hmm. back, right, allows the brain to to process things. That's why when we want to clear our heads about something, we go take a walk, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. That kind of thing. That's why when we're sleeping, and if we are fortunate and we have a safe place to sleep and a generally safe life. A good night's sleep, we get to that deep REM sleep. Right. That's the back and forth of the eyes, mm-hmm. right, that allows mm-hmm. the brain to process. Mm-hmm. So in ideal situations, that's just happening with a good night's sleep. Mm-hmm. We're just mm-hmm. – and the thing that inspires me about this kind of work is just that recognition that we we are designed to heal from mm-hmm. everything. Mm-hmm. I mean, and not without support mm-hmm. and not without appropriate, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, there's a difference between a scratch on your arm where you might need a Band-Aid and you might go, need to go get stitches, yeah. right? But both of those things, mm-hmm. you know, the healing still is we're built to heal. Mm-hmm. And so so EMDR was um, was an innovation. Mm-hmm. Um, it is – it has evolved to a place of being heavily protocol-based, and for some situations and some clients, that's that kind of uh, highly structured mm-hmm. effect is is beneficial, mm-hmm. um, but not that's not for everybody. Right, right, right. And um, so as but but Dr. Grant was doing work with this ice skater, and mm-hmm. he noticed her eye just did a weird little wobble. 
in one spot when, mm-hmm. when he was doing this with her, and her eye did a weird little wobble. And he describes the experience that he, I mean, he it was almost like he couldn't have moved it forward if he wanted to. And that has to do with really what's at the root of brain spotting is the attunement. Mm-hmm. Again, like I said in the beginning about the relationship. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not the gimmicks and the mm-hmm. tools that we have. It's mm-hmm. the relationship. And he was so attuned to what was going on with her, not only emotionally, but just observing everything mm-hmm. about her. And that eye wobbled, and so he just stayed there for about, I think, 20 minutes. Mm -hmm. And, you know, afterward, debriefed a little Mm -hmm. bit, and she talked about um, just all the memories that came, Mm -hmm. right? Times that she had fallen on the ice, times Mm -hmm. that her parents had had a fight in the car on Mm -hmm. the way to practice, Mm -hmm. all kinds of things, a a coach yelling at her. Mm -hmm. Or or falls, Mm -hmm. you know, we, Mm -hmm. you know, and really, in this town, we need to be aware of it for sure, right? Athletes. Kids who grow up as athletes are being traumatized all the time mm-hmm. in terms of the brain is experiencing True. trauma, right? Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean it's life-threatening, but it does mean that um, they'll develop habits of of their muscles will just like go into mm. bracing mm-hmm. or freezing or flinching, you know. Mm-hmm. And that's something where the brain, for whatever reason, just hasn't processed that through. Fascinating. So okay. in this scenario, they finish this session. Uh-huh. And she calls him the next day and leaves him a message. And she says, I can do it every time. Mm-hmm. Like, I can do it. Every, like, whatever the glitch was just gone. And so he and his colleagues at that time, they were like, ooh, this is really something we've yeah. stumbled onto. Right. And so um, and so I actually first came into contact with it through on Sounds True. I don't know if you ever listened to their audio books. They mm-hmm. do wonderful interviews. Tammy Simon is the woman mm-hmm. who is out of Boulder. Colorado, and um, she had him on. They did, Sounds True sponsored this sort of online training, Mm -hmm. and pieces of it were live, pieces of it were not live, but, Mm -hmm. you know, and that was right at the time, like I had given notice at my old job and was working out a month-long notice to begin the Mm -hmm. work at the trauma treatment center, Mm -hmm. And, um, and I called my friend that had recruited me over there, and I was like, let me tell you about this thing. I'm, you know, getting this yeah. training in. And she said, yeah, I think you're going to find this is going to be a good work home for you, you know. But yeah. um, but the uh, – so that started there. Yeah. And so um, – and then being in a scenario where I had lots of opportunities to use it. Um, so to get back to a little more structured way of talking about it. No, you're fine. Um, this aspect of where where we look affects mm-hmm. what we're accessing mm-hmm. and affects how we feel. Mm-hmm. It's not about sight. Blind people can do brain spotting. The issue is our optic nerves that are that are, that are actually a part of our brain mm-hmm. and that are these orienting mechanisms. And so, um, with addiction in particular, mm-hmm. there's a brain spotting practitioner, probably a con- I'm sure she's a consultant. I know she's a trainer for sure. Uh, Roby Abel's in Australia who um, who developed, kind of stumbled onto, mm-hmm. so much in brain spotting is like people stumble onto things mm-hmm. and then they develop it yeah. mm-hmm. when they realize mm-hmm. uh, with, you know, that with addiction, what was happening for her clients and, and she was realizing what happens in addiction is that the part of the brain where somebody feels a compulsion and, and really to broaden it beyond addiction, addictions, attachments, and compulsions, mm-hmm. right? All any mm-hmm. that 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 craving for some kind of relief, mm-hmm. right? We're, we're outside of our our system of of feeling like I can be at ease, I can mm-hmm. operate, and and our whole system is just like mm-hmm. screaming for something. 
that spot mm-hmm. is not talking to the part of the brain that remembers consequences. Mm-hmm. That remembers, yeah. I mean, we may intellectually remember sure. it, right? Yeah. But people don't really remember like, yeah, you know, last time you nagged him about drinking, that didn't actually help at all, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And because family members also have our own compulsions mm-hmm. and, att- you know, that, that feeling of I've mm-hmm. got to do something. I'm responsible here, I'm, mm-hmm. you know. And so what she found was that helping people get in touch with the craving spot, helping people get in touch with the spot connected to the consequences, mm-hmm. Um, and helping them understand just a little more about addiction in general mm-hmm. in, in, in her particular case. And then having people work between those two spots. Um, so that So that when the person had the thought to use or to act out in some way, mm-hmm. it's not that that thought might not rise, right? Anything that's really, really persistent for human beings has had some you know, gave some relief at some mm-hmm, point mm-hmm. and the body gave a big old chemical stamp of like, remember yeah. that, yeah. do that yeah, again. Yeah, yes. That was, yeah, that yeah. was the thing, you know? And so, so the thought it's going to arise at times, but now with those two spots connected immediately with it are the consequences. Mm, right. Right. It's like, okay, that's not really an option because that's miserable. Right. You know? Yeah. Um, and then she, and then, and then when people are doing that, they finish up with finding a spot connected to freedom. Mm-hmm. Like, what would that look like? What would what would that feel like in your body? So it's very, I'm talking a lot about the eye position and all that, but really it's a very, it's actually a very somatic practice. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but what I love about it as a therapist is the flexibility to be able to work with people who, <laughs> I had one client who said, you know, I just used to feel like a walking head, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, I've worked with her for a few years now. But she said, you know, like when I came in here, I just felt like I was a walking head, you know, and like the ground's down there. But she said I just wasn't and she just didn't feel connected. There was mm-hmm. just so much stored that she was, you know, afraid to deal with or really not even afraid. Just didn't have the. You have to have certain things have to uh, be in place. Mm-hmm. I don't know. This is. A sidebar, but not really. And I tend to speak in book recommendations. Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. yeah. So <laughs> you're our people. There's we a, do. <laughs> so there's a classic book on grief recovery called the Greek Recovery Handbook. Okay. And one of the things that they talk about, and I find this to be true for really people who have who mm-hmm. have therapy to do, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. is that that the things that need to be in place for a grief process to do its natural healing work. Mm-hmm are time for it, space for it, permission to feel, mm-hmm. and a sense that somebody is there. Now, mm-hmm. they don't have to be there in the room with you, mm-hmm. but there has to be the feeling like I could call them up in the middle of the night if I right. needed to. Right. And so when people don't have that, mm-hmm. and, you know, kind of back to the thing you were asking me, Megan, a little while ago about who might be difficult to work mm-hmm. with, mm-hmm. If, if we tried to go straight into the trauma work for somebody who doesn't have mm-hmm. a safe sure. place, who doesn't yeah. have enough community— that can sometimes be the mm-hmm. challenge because mm-hmm. sometimes people are coming in and they want to talk about the worst thing that ever happened to mm-hmm. them. It's like, okay, we will, and let's get you situated so that that's not so flooding. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, let's get you in a situation yeah. where you have enough support. And um, because when we release that here, mm-hmm. you're going to experience like this euphoria of like, ooh, freedom, right? But really, 
there's also this experience of like, I've been living my life as if a hand was in front of my face. Mm -hmm. And I've kind of learned to navigate like this. Mm -hmm. And then I resolve this trauma and now everything looks different. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how to... Mm-hmm. Now what? How to navigate right. anymore. And so yeah. that takes having support and sure. and grief over the time that was lost and mm-hmm. all of that. Um, so the so that I gave the example of Roby's, mm-hmm. you know, there also is a particular setup that Dr. Pi Fry in Boulder developed around OCD. Mm. Um, and that just the recognition that there are three different parts of the brain involved in OCD and um, and helping people not stay, you know, don't stay in this. Mm-hmm. You, you only visit your OCD spot long enough to check how upsetting is it, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But you don't hang out there because mm-hmm. you don't want that to to grow mm-hmm. tentacles even even further. Right, right. right. Um, the the other th- the thing that I like about it, though, in terms of of uh, people that struggle to feel in their bodies at first, is that because the because the, for lack of a better word, the brain communicates directly with the therapist. Mm-hmm. And so, for instance, I can be looking for a spot when somebody's saying, you know, well, I had this argument with so-and-so, you know, I, it made me furious at the time, but I can't feel anything about it right now, mm-hmm. you know. So that's fine. Just think about the argument. And um, and and moving a pointer. Mm-hmm. Sometimes people use a pointer. Sometimes other things. Sometimes people just gaze. Mm-hmm. But... Um, if they can't feel it for themselves, the therapist can just watch. And it's astonishing. The brain will signal you as the therapist. I mean, some some of it's just reflexes like mm-hmm. extra blinking. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Some of it is, um, you know, a slight, a win- you know, mm-hmm. sometimes people do mm-hmm. a flinch. I've actually also had people like nod and they did not know they were nodding. Mm. It was just their brain went here. Yeah. You know, and you just work. And 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 then kind of in the process, that's one of those things where um, sometimes with trauma work for people, it things can sometimes feel quote unquote worse before it's better because mm-hmm. they might have to feel something for a minute before they release it. You yeah, know? Sure, yeah. But um, but there are just so many ways to help make that so much more gentle and manageable for people. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's um, and so. When people are working with a brain spotting therapist, it's the therapist is really there's this saying in those circles. They talk about following the tail of the comet, right? That you're not mm-hmm. dis, you're not here to wrangle in your client and tell them how it's going to go. Mm-hmm. It's to follow them. And yes, you might have some education for them, or you mm-hmm. might have. But in this. It's so astonishing that if we will let the brain do its work, Mm -hmm. the client will come up with their own recommendations. Mm -hmm. Oh, I think I need to do some breath work. I hold my breath a lot. You know, that was one that happened recently. Or, you know, I really love my essential oils. I need to take some of those to work. Hmm. That would keep, you know, just Mm -hmm. they will, when they get a chance to just angle and view things from a, literally Mm -hmm. from a different perspective, Mm -hmm. then their brain and you know, at one point, I don't know if there there's there is quite a bit of research um, around brain spotting over the last fifteen years, mm-hmm. um, and I don't know if this is still true. But when I was getting started in it, one thought about what was going on was maybe an idea that somehow in this uh, in the eye to eye. 
that somehow that the therapist's eyes were acting as a mirror for the person's mm. brain, mm. right? Our brains kind of are constantly scanning our bodies for, mm. you know, do I need to go to the bathroom? Do I, is there a scratch? Is there, am I wounded? Is there a bruise to heal, right? The brain's just all, doing all that. And, um, but it, but it, it does need some technology, for lack of a better word, to see itself. Mm-hmm. Meditation, mindfulness practice is the longest known technology for that, mm-hmm. it, for, the, for the mind to see itself. Mm-hmm. Um, and brain spotting just allows people to, to have the support and to be able to get there quickly. Gotcha. Yeah. That is so cool. What, Isn't that so yeah. cool? Oh, gosh. I love what that. I love about this, too, is that, like, I know when I first went into therapy or counseling, it's like, I just thought you laid on a couch to talk about your feelings. And, you know, I know that there's, that's on the movies. And sure. I think there's a lot of stigma around, though, like the tools and how much is actually involved when you go mm-hmm. to counseling, like mm-hmm. brain spotting, EMDR, other types of techniques. Mm-hmm. And like you don't just have to sit in a chair or on a couch right. and talk about your feelings. But I think a lot of people still think that's what you do. Mm-hmm. And so thank you for going into that depth yeah. and like that the back end like Uh the brain is so involved Mm -hmm. you know our emotions our everything our muscles you know as a former athlete I identify with the muscle flinches and stuff that Mm -hmm. happens still it's like there's so much that goes on in that if you haven't just even been open enough to do the work you know Mm -hmm. even if it's just a little freedom you find right there's something there for everyone yes and because what we know consciously is only I mean what if we're lucky, 6% of what yeah. our brain has, you know. Mm-hmm. So that's that's the other piece is yeah. that this work is a, is happening. And so much at, like at the end of the session, mm-hmm. sometimes, you know, the therapist is like, well, I don't know why they feel better. Sometimes you, you can mm-hmm. hear it. Mm-hmm. They'll share with you some big insight they had. Mm-hmm. Right. And you can go, well, yeah, obviously that's going to make somebody sure. feel better. Yeah. But other times you don't know what. You don't know what happened, and to be willing to be in that unknowingness, mm-hmm. you know, is mm-hmm. is the thing. Mm-hmm. Is part is partly what makes it kind of like a uh, just an adventurous way to work, you know, with mm-hmm. people, um, and yet one that has a lot of built-in safety because there's a mm-hmm. lot of um, the thing you were saying too that about uh, what to expect mm-hmm. or just how yeah. it make, might make people nervous. On the question about what to look for, mm-hmm. right, if you are currently in a situation where you're pretty isolated or you just don't have a trust level to know who to ask mm-hmm. for word of mouth recommendations, um, if you're looking at people's website, the word experiential mm-hmm. would be valuable. Mm-hmm. Um, looking for things like it, it could be brain spotting or EMDR training or somatic experiencing or uh-huh. psychodrama. Or, you know, like mm-hmm. looking for, and that does not mean that other things that are out there are not helpful. But the other things that are out there are often the things that people sort of already know about, or at least they feel like they already know about. Mm-hmm. And they kind of, and to be fair, sometimes people say, oh, yeah, I already tried that. That didn't work. It's like, oh, you tried that? Well, how, how, oh, yeah, I went for two sessions. It's like, okay, well, dude, you didn't try that, but okay. <laughs> you know, so. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> but. But what that tells you is, okay, that, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe cognitive behavioral stuff, for whatever reason, shuts him Mm -hmm. down, right? Mm -hmm. So he he might really love something that's more active, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. You know, and if, and I'm just 
using a he is, you know, it's like if he's having trouble forgiving his 14-year-old self for starting drugs, then we're going to bring an empty chair right here and let him talk to mm-hmm. his 14-year-old mm-hmm. and let mm-hmm. him move over as the 14-year-old and yeah. answer, mm-hmm. you know, and to to get out of thinking that the relief is going to come from thinking our way to it. Um, that is one other thing that I, I think is so important to understand about contemplative body-based therapies and, and, me, and, and means of growth is that so often we think we've all had those moments of like, there's like a ding and we mm-hmm. feel better. Mm-hmm. And, and we mistakenly think that we had a thought and that that's what gave us the relief. Right. And right. that's what keeps us chasing sometimes, mm-hmm. chasing, mm-hmm. chasing, chasing for mm-hmm. the thought that's going to give us relief. But actually what happened is the body solved it. Yeah. And in that moment of relief, and then there's mm-hmm. like the insight. Right, right. And so anything where you can, that puts you in tr- touch with your body, you know, we are, we are so close to the monastery over here mm-hmm. in Batesville mm-hmm. where somebody can go and really just practice in the safest, kindest environment possible mm-hmm. um, this experience of just allowing your body to nourish you mm-hmm. by just being willing to give it some time and attention to just settle down mm-hmm. and to stop striving, striving, mm-hmm. striving. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that when we were talking about forms of de- developmental stress, mm-hmm. that striving is one of them. Mm-hmm. Um and that can be true, and it can. And this can be extra confusing for families that are working really hard to give their children a better childhood than they have, right? mm. than they had. So that might be that might be they're trying really hard to do it emotionally, mm. and they read all the parenting books, and they you know they're trying mm-hmm. to do everything really right. Or it might be materially mm-hmm. that they're trying to give them something better. Is it? But the the whole underlying experience of striving mm-hmm. when you have folks that really haven't given themselves mm-hmm. the time that they deserve they need and deserve mm-hmm. to to resolve mm-hmm. things um it there's nowhere for that to go except downhill to right. the next generation right um yeah i think that's a beautiful place for us to kind of wrap it up now yeah. Yeah. i think that's a really yeah. great place because you've yeah. given us so much to mm-hmm. sit with and both. chew yeah. on and yeah. think yeah. about and you've covered a ridiculous amount of ground and i am incredibly thankful yeah. for we're gonna have to bring of, her back <laughs> yes no i totally <laughs> agree that, i totally agree yeah. but i think if we could we, so that so far this season we've been trying to leave folks with like mm-hmm. things you can do today for yourself yeah. things you can do for your family and things you can do for your community yeah. so you've covered a lot of ground and i think i i can pull out in my head things that would fit each of those categories but i'm going to mm-hmm. leave the question to you what is something we can do right now for ourselves what are we what can we do for our families and what can we do for our communities yeah. Let's see here. Yeah. So, yeah. So on the thing about the things that people can do for themselves, one of the things is I – there's just no reason mm-hmm. not to have some sort of community anymore. Even mm-hmm. if you want it to start out – completely anonymous on zoom Mm -hmm. you know in your room Mm -hmm. right all of these you know like i said there's all of these um all kinds of family member programs Mm -hmm. and if people are if if people have a 
discomfort with what for whatever mm-hmm. reason with twelve step stuff. There's Buddhist recovery circles. Mm-hmm. There's there are recovery circles out there, um, and so finding anything that you can relate to and getting plugged into that, mm-hmm. even just like finding like the thing you can do today is just go online at a Families Anonymous or Al-Anon or something and and look for where the Zoom meetings are and have an idea, even if you like, okay, here's two times a week that I could hop onto a Zoom meeting, mm-hmm. right? Maybe mm-hmm. later you'll graduate to talking to people live, but actually there's a lot of help that goes on, mm-hmm. you know, in those Zoom meetings. So that's one that's one thing. Okay. Um, there's also, there is a book called Conquer Your Critical Inner Voice. By Dr. Robert Firestone and some other people helped him write it. It really does a great job of helping people understand that if we are being run by that critical inner voice, we are going to pass it along to our children, even if we never say the words out loud. Mm -hmm. And so that, again, just, you know, parents need and deserve help, Mm -hmm. right? But Mm -hmm. also, sometimes helping people know and this is also the way you're going to help your family right. members mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. right right um for family units i really love the work of harvel and gay hendrix the mm-hmm. giving the love you want uh mm-hmm. get and and giving the love that heals mm-hmm. so that's about couples and about kids mm-hmm. raised kids um there's also a pair of books that michael bradley wrote uh, one is called Yes, Your Teen is Crazy, and that's for parents. <laughs> and the other is Yes, Your Parents are Crazy, <laughs> and it's for teens. And it really does a lovely job of explaining for, to teenagers like, hey, for a lot of people, if they have unresolved stuff, it's usually in their adolescence. Right. Unless mm-hmm. it's, uh, you know, egregious stuff earlier. But, you know, and so you you are not a bad kid. It's just being the age you are is what mm-hmm. triggers your dad. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. that you are the age he was when this thing happened for him. Mm-hmm. So it, mm-hmm. that pair of books is a great way for families to have some humor and yeah, also yeah. be able to discuss I some love things. It. What great names. Yeah. <laughs> I can see a lot of Christmas gifts. Yes. Right. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, within the communities, you know, I think for sure things like this mm-hmm. that that you all are doing, that the Mayo family is doing, that other families are doing, um, the McGee family, just to help bring awareness, the um, um, the the uh, my daughter who Alexis knows that mm-hmm. helped co- coordinate this mm-hmm. overdose awareness day mm-hmm. that we had. At the end of August, it was a that was really something beautiful because a person could arrive there, and mm-hmm. I don't care what part of the community you were from, you could find a booth that mm-hmm. you could connect mm-hmm. to. Mm-hmm. It was mm-hmm. a neat, you yeah. know, gathering. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, but something around, and I don't know how we would address this, mm-hmm. but I, I do have to share. It was something that might be hard for people to hear, which is we have some kids that are so angry about the fact that adult drinking culture in this town is mm-hmm. what it is. And so a kid, I just, I I really remember strongly a young man that talked to me, but this is, I had not lived here very long, but before the pandemic. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And he was experimenting with whatever he mm-hmm. was experimenting with. And he said, you know, I really don't want to hear it. I run into my teachers at the Grove all the time and they're plastered. It's not just my parents. You know, they're Mm -hmm. so angry. Mm -hmm. And the anger comes from, I want somebody I trust to be like, how else can you deal with things? How else can you have fun? Right. And of course, um, 
you know, the the anger also partly comes from just that teenage judgmentalness of not sure. understanding yeah, people's yeah. struggle. Yeah, yeah. Like adults struggle, and that's why mm-hmm. that's their way of, that's mm-hmm. their only means of mm-hmm. entertainment or mm-hmm. their means of, you know. Mm-hmm. But that somehow addressing the fact that, because um, it's, challenging, you know, a lot of, not just in our town, but our our economy runs off of inebriation to a large degree, and so it's like we're not going to be able to help our kids very much unless yeah. we get very creative about changing that. Mm-hmm. But I have no idea how that, how that would happen. It's a it's a do as I say, not do as I do yeah. type of situation, right? right. But I, and I think that's a really key observation, yeah, yeah. and mm-hmm. I, and I mean. If only we had the answer to it today, but right, right. it's certainly something worth our considering and thinking harder on, mm-hmm. right? Because if we see it through that lens, it does seem absolutely mm-hmm. from that young man's perspective, like, right. like yeah, these people don't have a leg to stand yeah, on. It's kind of tricky. Yeah. Like, how do you justify yeah. that, right? So I yeah. totally get it. But I think we have a amazing group of listeners. And so mm-hmm. let's start thinking about that and, and having conversations, continuing this conversation in that space yeah. to figure out what we what we want, what we value, and, and aligning what we say with what we do, mm-hmm. right? And I think that's where what a we have so many gems from this episode. I can't even. I'm just so excited. And we are absolutely going to have to have you back again. Yeah. Um, thank you so much for making the time for us this oh, afternoon. We are incredibly appreciative of it yeah. and all of your wisdom and your ideas and keeping us practical, things we can do, books we can pick up, mm-hmm. stuff we can start thinking about. Um, it's just been a real pleasure chatting with you yeah, again. So thank, thank you. you so much. Thank you so much. Yeah, appreciate it. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Mayo Lab Podcast. The Mayo Lab Podcast is produced by Dr. Natasha Dieter, Dr. Megan Rosenthal, Alexis Lee, Slade Lewis, and Hannah Finch. This podcast was recorded at Broadcast Studio in Oxford, Mississippi. The show was mixed and mastered by Clay Jones, and our original music was composed by Slade Lewis. The Mayo Lab Podcast is brought to you by the William McGee Institute for Student Wellbeing. For more information on the Mayo Lab podcast, head over to themayolab.com and follow us on social media at the Mayo Lab. If you enjoyed listening to the Mayo Lab podcast, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you are listening to this podcast. This podcast represents the opinions of Dr. Megan Rosenthal, Alexis Lee, and their guests on the show. This podcast is not intended to be a substitute for the medical advice of a licensed counselor or physician. The listener should consult with their mental health professional in any matters relating to his or her health or the health of a child.